Hi, I'm Alex, and welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. This is the podcast where we decode investing principles by analyzing the businesses behind the stock, as well as looking at mental models in order to help you become a better investor. Let's go. Welcome. Welcome to the Stock Stories Podcast. As mentioned, my name is Alex and I am your stock storyteller and host for today. Yes, here on this show, we talk about real companies. We are going through the entire S&P 500 and a few other companies from time to time. And we also talk about mental models. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Mental models, what are those? If you're new to the show, a mental model is a thought process, kind of like a a thought-based principle or a thought experiment about how to think about different things and how to solve different problems using a certain paradigm or framework. So that's what a mental model is. And every once in a while, usually about once a month, we go through one of these. And these are just so important because once you understand mental models, You can apply them to so many different situations. It's like having extra tools in your mental tool chests with which to think through different problems and come up with different solutions or better solutions. And not just better solutions, sometimes you'll find a better solution more quickly than you otherwise would just because you have that mental model that you need in your mental tool chest. So that is what we're going to do today. And so without further ado, let's just get right into it. Let us talk about seizing the middle. Let's talk about the mental model of seizing the middle. So what does that mean? It seems kind of like a a weird phrase to say, right? Well, what does it mean? The basic idea is this, by aligning yourself in a certain domain with favorable characteristics, you're more likely to have greater flexibility and reap more rewards. So let me repeat that. By aligning yourself within a certain domain with favorable characteristics, you're more likely to have greater flexibility and reap more rewards. Okay, so practically though, what does that mean? So the example that uh, there's a man named Shane Parrish that Shane Parrish gives on his blog where he talks about mental models, it's called Farnham Street and I highly recommend it if you are unaware of it. The example he gives is that of a chessboard. So imagine you're playing a game of chess and Imagine that you are able to control the middle area of the board. Now, this is really advantageous for you because you tend to create more options for yourself later in the game. If you've got a lot of pieces in the middle, you have more options. And the reason for this is because you're in a central position and you just have more potential moves you can make 
as opposed to if you had a bunch of chess pieces hiding out near the edges of the board. So if you've ever played chess before, you can kind of visually imagine what I'm talking about. Certain pieces can move in different ways, and by being in the middle, you expose yourself to more opportunity. So seizing the middle is all about options. Where can you and I put ourselves in life and in business such that in the future, we're more likely to have a lot of options? Not a few options, but a lot of options. That's what we want. So let's look at an example. The first example that came to mind as I was thinking about this mental model is that of education in America. So in the 20th century, if you were able somehow, some way to obtain a college degree, then in a way that was seizing the middle of the socioeconomic ladder in America. If you had a college degree, you were all but guaranteed to get a decent job and be able to live a a pretty good life. At least, uh, at least that's a picture that's painted to me whenever I learn the history of this time period. I mean, by getting a degree, Americans were pretty much guaranteed to have their families secure a spot in the middle class. And that's due to a lot of reasons. I mean, back then, and I'm talking, you know, just imagine 1970, if we had to pick a year, or 1960. During this time, college degrees were pretty rare and the economy was just beginning to shift to a knowledge-based economy from a manufacturing, more labor-based economy. I mean, there was less foreign competition than there is today. There was lower tuition at schools, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you sure wouldn't guarantee yourself a ticket to affluence or being in the 1% or anything like that, but you wouldn't be poor either, or very unlikely that you would be poor because you would be pretty employable. So that's kind of an example of what I mean by seizing the middle. By having this degree, by having that education, at least historically, you've kind of been able to get a certain position within society. Again, no guarantees. I'm not trying to make a huge blanket statement because there are infinite variables involved in this kind of scenario. But on average, let's just say on average, for the average employable person, you are more employable with a college degree than without. And I think that's true to a degree, (laughs) even today, um, particularly within certain fields. For example, you just can't really be a petroleum engineer unless you study petroleum engineering. Like You you pretty much just have to do that. Now, on the other hand, if you want to be a computer science engineer or a programmer, you don't really need a degree to do that. You can teach the skills to yourself on your own or through some other avenue. So it just depends on the industry, but I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds with this. Suffice it to say that getting more education in this example means that you set yourself up for different options, different career trajectories, different paths, more options you can take. If you graduate high school and you don't continue in any sort of formal degree track at all, you still have a lot of options available to you. Don't get me wrong. But you have less options typically than if you did take that step because that's kind of the way that society has traditionally been designed, at least in 20th century America. So moving on to another example, let's look at this from the company perspective. So there's the old strategy of seizing the middle from the large firm Procter & Gamble. Now, if you haven't heard of Procter & Gamble, they're this huge consumer 
goods giants in America. They're kind of like what I think about when I think about quote unquote corporate America in America. That's kind of what I think about. Hey, Procter and Gamble. Now, They'll get their own episode on the show eventually, but for now, let's just talk about a few things related to the company. So consider this one fact. 298 out of 300 American households contain a product from Procter & Gamble in them. 298 out of 300, that's incredible. That's virtually all American households. So you can see the market penetration of P&G runs really deep in American consumer culture. Now, traditionally, Procter & Gamble has been excellent at producing consumer products for the middle class and not just creating any products, but the type of products that are more or less indispensable for modern life. I mean, think about things like Tide laundry detergent or Crest toothpaste. These are the kinds of brands that have been around for a long time. And because people grew up with them, they're more likely to use them themselves. Note the mental model of intergenerational transmission there. Now, not only that, but because Procter & Gamble has a lot of insight into middle America's buying patterns, they can create complementary products that are adjacent to their main brands. And this is where seizing the middle reaps its benefits, reaps its rewards. So in the case of Procter & Gamble and the Tide brand specifically, let's look at that. So the primary product of the Tide brand is Tide laundry detergent. I mean, you might buy and use this yourself. It's, it's so popular. And I mean, it smells really good, I might add, depending on the smells that you get. Now, Tide started out with a single laundry detergent product all the way back in 1946. So many decades ago. And now it's still around in 2020. It's actually the most dominant laundry detergent brand in the world with over 14% global market share. So Procter & Gamble, they really hit it out of the park with this one. And they've just been making laundry detergent for years and years and years. But you know what? Procter & Gamble didn't stop there. They exploited their position. Imagine the chessboard again. Procter & Gamble has moved successfully to the middle of the board with Tide, and now they've got options. Now they can start diversifying and leveraging that brand power. So for example, Procter & Gamble, they've expanded their product line with Tide. There are several types of Tide liquid detergent. There's several types of Tide powder detergent. There's variations with different scents. There are Tide to-go wipes, Tide stain removal pens, Tide washing machine cleaner, antibacterial fabric spray, and the list goes on and on. So by thoroughly dominating the middle class demand for laundry detergent, Procter & Gamble was able to create some adjacent products, but within the same brand name. And because they did that, they were able to have easier success. So if you and I buy Tide laundry detergent, we're probably more likely to buy the stain removal pen if we're looking for that kind of a product because we're already familiar with the brand name and we want to stay consistent. There's this principle of commitment and consistency which comes from psychology and maybe that's kind of a mental model in and of itself, but it certainly applies here. Now, I do want to point out that seizing the middle, it's not always the right strategy Sometimes attempting to dominate at the margins of a market is actually more profitable and it offers a better risk and reward relationship. 
So even now in America, the middle class that really Procter and Gamble was kind of built off of, that middle class is shrinking, and more people are being split between the lower and upper classes. So this is a shift that is informing product development for a lot of consumer-facing companies right now. So even Procter and Gamble, this huge giant, is having to rethink how it creates products because the buying patterns are simply different. Now I don't think Tide is going away anytime soon, but maybe different variations of Tide will come out in the future based on these demographic shifts. So let's talk now about the investing application of this mental model. To me, the most obvious application with this is looking at the company level, just like we did with Procter and Gamble right now. So companies that are able to apply this principle effectively can have a lot of great results with their bottom line. If you're able to exploit your position on the board, so to speak, you can have a lot more success that compounds off of your initial success. Another example we can look at is the example of large telecommunication companies like Verizon, Comcast, AT&T. So if you want to get internet access in your home, you basically have to go through one of those guys. There are no other providers and no other options. They have the infrastructure and that's pretty much it. So this is a type of competitive advantage of a business that's called the toll road. And that basically means that if you want to go from here to there, you have to go through that company in front of you. And that's, that's basically it. So the network and the infrastructure that really helps increase that competitive advantage as we saw way back when we talked about AT&T in the AT&T episode. Now, because these companies have dominant positions with certain products and services, they're then able to market other products and services with ease. So would you like a cable package and a phone bundle with your internet? I mean, why not? It's just $19.99 more per month, right? You know, have you heard of things like that? Have you seen the flyers in the mail from the telecom companies asking you to switch to them and bundle all your services to save money? That's exactly what they're doing. They're seizing the middle. They have a significant market share with, for example, internet services, and they're able to market these other services to you that are adjacent to that, like phone service, like cable service, although that is quickly dying (laughs) a very quick death based on the streaming services that have popped up now. But nonetheless, the business is evolving and the industry is evolving. So a quick story, when my wife and I moved into our home, we set up our internet with Comcast. Now, when they sent us the modem to install it, I was installing everything and I found found the modem and the cables and everything. So I'm, I'm plugging everything in. But I noticed this little small device that came in the packaging. And I was like, what is this? Did we order something extra? And I noticed it was actually a small TV streaming device, something not unlike a Roku streaming stick or a Google Chromecast or Amazon Fire Stick. Now, did we ask for this little gadget? Nope. Did we want it? (laughs) Nope. No, we were good with our current devices, but that didn't stop Comcast from sending it anyway. After all, they knew we were becoming internet customers, right? So why not try to sell some adjacent services that way? Comcast seized an advantageous position to market to us by positioning themselves as one of only a few providers of a service that 
we would absolutely hate to live without, which is the internet. So you can see how they were able to seize the middle in this way to market to us. Another example is, you know, just look at your personal investing situation. Look at your watch list of companies. Are there any that stick out to you as one that is seizing the middle in their respective marketplace? And if so, are they able to do it successfully? And are those trends trends that you think will be able to be continued with time? So thinking about this mental model, it can help you and I become better investors by allowing us to think a few moves ahead on the chessboard. What opportunities open up in one area by succeeding in another? Remember, we're playing the long game here as investors. It's not just about what's working well today. It's what's working well today that will then enable us to do things at an even greater effectiveness and efficiency and a higher compounding rate tomorrow. So just some thoughts for you there about the mental model of seizing the middle. All right, that's all I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening to the Stock Stories podcast. Again, my name is Alex, and I am just so grateful for you to be listening. And hey, you made it to the end of the episode, so I appreciate that. If you want to reach out to me, there are a couple ways you can do that. Send me an email to alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. Or if you're on Instagram, feel free to send me a direct message and I will reply to you. It's at Stock Storyteller. That's at Stock Storyteller. If you have any suggestions or you're struggling with anything, I want to know about it because I want to help you as best I can. So appreciate you in advance for that. If there's one thing that you can do for me to help the show out, it's to share the show. If there's anyone in your life who you think would love this show, who could really use this information and uh, this insight that I'm sharing, go ahead and share the show with them. That would mean a lot to me and helps grow the show in order to sustain it going forward. So thank you in advance for that too. And with that, I'll see you next week. Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.